If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This morning we'll be looking at verses 16 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. When have we done enough? That's the question in our heart very often. When have we done enough? Whether it's at school, at home, at work. Dad said to clean my room, but how clean is clean? How clean does it really have to be? My manager said to recheck these invoices, but do I have to look at each and every one of them? I told my neighbor I'd keep the noise down at night, but when does night begin? And how loud is loud? I said I'd help with the dishes. Does that mean once a week? Once a month? When have I done enough to satisfy? We we want boundaries. We want clarity. We want to know when we've done enough to satisfy someone. And the same is true of our obedience with God. When have we obeyed enough? When is there a line to know that we've satisfied Him? What does it take to satisfy God? Jesus' response to that question is a warning. A warning to good people who would trust their obedience. A warning that the very question itself misunderstands what God wants. And so, as Jesus answers this young man, we should read carefully here these warnings and through the warnings be led to the good news of God's grace. The first warning that we see is that God requires obedience. God requires obedience. It's it's so interesting to look at this story right after the one we looked at last week. As we've been going through Matthew's Gospel last week, we saw parents bringing young children and, and laying them before Jesus that He might put His hands on them and bless them and pray for them. And we saw that Jesus told His disciples that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who become like children, who are like children, who humble themselves who recognize their absolute need and dependence, that they bring and cannot achieve any status in the eyes of God, they can only hope to receive grace. Immediately after that, in verse 16, behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That which can only be given, he wants to attain. Do you you feel the, the jarring contrast between these stories. The, the almost whiplash-inducing change in perspective we have. One minute, one minute we're vividly shown how powerless we are and how God enters into that powerlessness and blesses us by grace. 
so that eternal life is not a reward that we earn, but a gift we receive. And then suddenly we have this man saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to do what it takes to get it. What good deed must I do? Jesus answers him in verse 17. If you would enter life, if that's your goal, keep the commandments. Jesus isn't saying anything new. He's just repeating that which is all throughout the Old and New Testament. For example, in Leviticus 18, verses 4 through 5, it says, You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, and that's a big if, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But, but doesn't that go against everything that we just saw? Hasn't Jesus been teaching precisely the opposite of that very thing? Or is it set up so that you can, you can somehow enter God's kingdom through perfect obedience, but if you mess that up, as most of us probably will, then there's a backup plan. There is forgiveness through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But that's only if you don't you know, stick to plan A, which is perfect obedience. Now that makes sense from a certain standpoint until we understand the seriousness of what Jesus means when He says, keep the commandments. You see, we often think that we are keeping the commandments and doing well at keeping the commandments. But what we're really doing is we're keeping some commandments. You know, look, I'm, I'm doing a great job keeping the commandments that, that are natural to me or that I think are important or that my culture or my community emphasizes and values. I'm faithful to my spouse. I read my Bible. I give money to the church. I don't swear or get drunk very often. I'm kind to my neighbors. I'm practically a saint. And it's easy to look down on other people who don't share your preferred commandments of obedience. You look at them and compare. You know, they're tempted in areas that you're not tempted by. And so you feel like you're doing a pretty good job keeping the commandments. We don't consider how we have failed to keep the commandments that are harder for us or things that we are blind to and others see our disobedience. Maybe we don't notice that greed has so captured our hearts that we worship the feeling of having something new. And, and when we're stressed out, we resort to retail therapy and we just need to buy something or at least shop for a while to feel better. Or, or maybe envy and resentment has consumed us and taken root in our hearts so that we're always angry at other people for real or imagined slights. When Jesus says, keep the commandments, He doesn't mean keep some of them. He doesn't mean keep the ones that come naturally to you or the ones that you like. It means all of them. That's the standard. That's the only way that you could possibly work your way into eternal life. The man in this story doesn't get that. So when Jesus says, keep the commandments in verse 18, he answers Jesus, which ones? Which ones do I have to keep? in order to satisfy God. And rather than correct his error on that point, Jesus begins listing some of the commandments in verses 18 and 19. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, if we've been following what Jesus has been teaching all along, we know that simply saying, do not murder, does not mean don't physically take a life. It means more than that, even hating someone. Looking at your sister or your brother and, and condemning them in your hearts or, or holding a grudge against them and bearing something against them is committing murder against them. And committing adultery is not just a physical act, but the lust and desire in your heart, again, is committing the act. And that last one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, in Scripture is often pointed to as being the summary of all the law. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I would not have gotten very far down this list before checking out and saying, okay, well, I obviously can't do that. I obviously have not done that. I mean, at the very least, love your neighbor as yourself. I do not love others with the same degree of, of diligence and faithfulness that I love myself. Jesus is not trying to seriously answer this man's question and give him a, a path to heaven based on obedience. Which commandments out of the, the hundreds in Scripture, which ones do you really need to keep and which ones can you skip out on? That's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to show His followers that God requires obedience and you cannot obey the way that He requires. But the man is still deluded. He claims in verse 20, all these I have kept. Really? He doesn't understand the kind of obedience that God requires. He needs to be disillusioned. Now, I, I don't often use sports illustrations, and those who know me understand why. That's just, I'm incapable in that. Uh, one way I came to realize that was when the, the time I actually tried sports. A um, long time ago, when I was very young, learning soccer. And one of the things, now there was wisdom in this coach and what he had us do, one of our first practices, was he, he had us team up. You got half the team on one side and one person on the other. And that one person, he said, you want the ball so bad, you take the ball and you go score a goal by yourself against the whole team. Try it. You give up pretty quick. Well, then you get the next person out. And each and every one of us got to take a chance to be the star, to show how good we were, and to take that ball down the field. And we didn't last very long by ourselves against the whole team. And what he was trying to do, what this coach was trying to do in wisdom, was to disillusion us of the notion that any one of us was enough on that field by ourselves. We needed our team. Before he could take the time to teach us how to pass the ball and how to dribble and, and how to coordinate an attack and, and how to communicate on the field, we had to understand that we needed that. And none of us coming into that practice knew that we needed that. Each of us believed, no, surely I can do this by myself. I know how to kick this ball. We needed to be disillusioned. And in the same way, as long as this young man relied on the illusion that he could accomplish what God required of him, that he could be rewarded by God for his deeds. To the extent that he was illusioned by that, he would not be like a child and receive the kingdom by grace. We need to be broken of the illusion that we can somehow be good enough to do what God requires. Why do you think in our worship each week we have a confession of sin? We do that so that, that we can be broken of the illusion that through our week, just because we haven't gone out and killed someone or robbed a bank or, or 
even held our, because we've held our tongue when caught in traffic, we get the illusion that we're good people. That we've done enough to make God happy. We need to be broken of that illusion. That's why in our confessions of sin, in worship, they're worded the way that they are. We don't word it like, God, I, 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 I confess that I have killed someone this week. I confess that I cheated on my taxes. I confess that I did this or that. No, we're, we're not asking you to confess those things because most of you would tune out, I hope. No, we confess the things that we've really done. I've not loved as I ought to love. I've not obeyed as I ought to obey. I've trusted other things. I've cared more about my own kingdom than God's. We are all guilty of those things. And we need regularly to be broken of the illusion that we're capable of doing enough. Because only then are we ready to receive by grace what God gives. But there's another problem faced by the person who wants to be good. You know, the one problem that we just discussed is that God requires obedience. He requires perfect obedience. But the other problem is that obedience itself is not enough. Even if you perfectly keep God's commands, it is not enough. Look back on the question the man asked in verse 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then in the next verse, Jesus replies, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. What a strange answer to that question. Before telling him to keep the commandments, and without telling him what single good deed would win God's favor, Jesus argues with this man about his adjectives. Why are you asking me about what's good? The man wants to know about good deeds, and Jesus says, what are you talking about? The only one who is truly good is God. What does that have to do with the question? Well, what Jesus is doing, He's reminding us here that there are different types of obedience. That goodness does not reside in the action itself. An action can be obedient or right, or in our common language, good, but we can do the right things for the wrong reasons, can't we? God isn't looking for a bunch of robots who will follow rules, and He could have made machines that would do that. And neither does God desire that we approach Him as a means to an end the way that false friends and distant relatives long forgotten will gather around a new lottery winner, hoping to do whatever they can do to win the favor of the person who is suddenly a millionaire. You know, the man's question reveals his motivation. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What's his goal? What's his objective? He wants eternal life. God is just a means to the end. But doesn't this sound like the kind of thing that we've been hearing earlier as we've been going through Matthew, especially the past couple chapters here? How many times, Jesus, do I have to forgive someone before I can stop forgiving? Jesus says it's not about counting apologies. That's, you've missed the point of forgiveness, if that's your question. How much do I have to put up with in marriage, Jesus, before I can divorce? You, you've missed the point. You don't understand the very definition of marriage. These are the kind of questions we've been seeing in Scripture lately. And Jesus keeps going to the heart of the problem. The heart problem behind the question. And the heart problem here is that obedience, good deeds for this young man, and often for us, become a merely currency. It's something we hope to trade for something else. If, what do I, how much do I have to do 
to get what I want. When, when that happens, when we act that way, when we treat God as, as somebody who's going to trade obedience for reward, we've become like the people spoken against in Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our righteous deeds, even the good things we do, are like a polluted garment. They're filthy in God's eyes. Why? Because we haven't done what He asked? No, we're doing the right things. But we're doing it with an evil heart. We're doing it for the wrong reason. Goodness does not reside in the deed or the action itself. Righteous deeds can be polluted if we do them for the wrong reason. What good deed must we do? Jesus says, there is no deed that in itself is good. If we're doing it for the wrong reason, for the wrong end, with the wrong heart, it ceases to be a good deed. This idea is all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament prophets come back to it again and again as Israel, God's people, were often doing the right things, offering sacrifices, keeping the Sabbath, obeying the dietary laws. But their heart was to gain reward. God had strong words for this so-called obedience through the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 5, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. These are things God had commanded and required. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The people of God were more concerned with jumping through hoops and doing the kind of deeds God had required and they were missing the very heart of God. And they were not desiring to build His kingdom and love their Lord as He wanted to be loved. They just said, what are the, what are the things you're going to make us do? We'll do them. You want us to sing pretty songs? We'll sing pretty songs. You want us to show up? How many hours on Sunday do we have to show up? How much is enough, God? We'll do it. We'll do it. It doesn't matter if you do it. If your heart is not there. We can even do the, the things the Bible says are good, but that doesn't make us good. You to imagine me taking advantage of the technology that's out there, and those that know me know that that's a stretch, but let your imagination run wild, that I understand and make good use of technology to, to set up automatic delivery of flowers and chocolates to my wife on Mother's Day, on her anniversary, on her birthday, on the, uh, the anniversary of our first date, on special occasions. Not only that, let's say I find, and I'm sure there's something out there that will do this, some AI-generated technology that will generate messages of love and affirmation and compliment and I, gen I, I set up the, the, for those to be sent to her on a regular basis so that she is showered with love and affection every time she turns around. Am I building a strong and healthy marriage? Is she going to love and appreciate what I have done for her? No. I'm doing the right things. Is my heart in it? Am I genuinely trying to build a closer relationship with her? Not, not if that's the way I'm doing it. I'm doing the right things, but it's not accomplishing the purposes that those intend. The Lord requires obedience, but obedience itself is not enough. 
If we are obeying to get a reward, if we are obeying without heart, it is the same as if we were not obeying. So how do we avoid that? How do we obey in a way that matters? Well, This is where we start to see what Jesus' real answer is to the young man as He tells us and teaches us the third warning that obedience flows from worship. When Jesus tells him the commands that he must obey, the young man doesn't get it still. We saw in verse 20. He says, all these have kept, what do I still lack? We talk about a lack of self-awareness there. That's, that's how I would answer this question. What do I still lack? You lack self-awareness. If you think you are keeping these commands. So Jesus, what he does is he zeroes in on the one command that this young man is surely not keeping. Jesus knows him. He knows his heart. He knows what this young man loves. In verse 21, he says, well, if you want to be perfect, which could also mean complete, you want to fill in that one thing that's lacking, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. What Jesus is doing here is he's bringing up the first commandment. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, all that. That's the, he actually went fifth through tenth commandment pretty much. Now he goes back to the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Which in the words of Deuteronomy 6 are applied this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus is showing us that obedience, true obedience, flows from our worship. And if you love the Lord and worship Him, then your life will naturally follow a path of obedience. There will be challenges, yes. There will be failures. There will be bumps in the the road along the way. But the trend will be to follow and obey the one that you love and serve. But, if you love something else, and you let it rule your heart, your life will follow a different path at some point. Now, you will be able to obey God's commandments to a certain degree. Some of them will overlap as you try to obey the commands of God and the constraints and commands of what you truly worship and love. But sooner or later, the demands of following what you truly love will mean that you can no longer follow God as He calls you to. Conflict with the demands of your true object of worship mean that you will no longer be able or willing to follow God. This young man, we see, worshiped and served his wealth. And in Matthew 6, Jesus has warned us, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money and wealth can be to us an object of worship. Don't be so naive to think that as long as you aren't physically bowing down to some carved idol or praying to some painted image or something like that, then you aren't worshiping another god. Scripture warns us in Colossians 3. Listen to these words. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greediness, which is idolatry. To be greedy, to be covetous, to desire wealth, is to worship an idol. It's to look to something else for happiness, for security, for peace, for value, for meaning. So when this... When Jesus calls this young man to turn away from his greed, his possessions, his love of what he has, the young man's response reveals his true worship. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great 
possessions. The object of his worship defined the limits of his obedience. It's going to be true for you. Whatever it is you're tempted to look at and turn to, if there's anything that really owns your heart, that has and occupies the place in your heart that only the Lord should have, the object of your worship will define the limits of your obedience to God. Now, is Jesus saying that everyone must do as He commands in verse 21, to sell everything and to follow Him? No, I would, I would argue Jesus is not saying that. The rest of Scripture testifies to that in abundant places, that there is nothing inconsistent about having and being a good steward of possessions and following Christ. And we're going to hear more about that next week as we look at the rest of the story and how the disciples respond to this story. But what Jesus is doing here, He is diagnosing this young man's disobedience. He found the pressure point of this young man's worship and he pushed down hard to see what would happen. The idol that tempts you, the false worship that knocks at your door and calls you for a different kind of obedience, it might be money and possessions like this young man or it could be something else. It could be a devotion to a nation or to a political party. It could be a family relationship or a romantic relationship. It could be a certain career or lifestyle that you hope to attain. And in many ways, pursuing that may be compatible with following Jesus to a certain degree. But you can be sure of this. That if your heart is devoted to anything other than Christ, sooner or later the cracks will appear. The pressure point will emerge. And you will be called to either give it up and follow Jesus or to turn away sorrowfully because you can no longer follow Him. And you must continue pursuing what really occupies your heart. Those are hard words for us this morning. But I think that the words of Hebrews 6, verse 9, apply to us today. The writer of Hebrews says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, brothers and sisters, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Yes, the young man left sorrowfully because he had false worship on his heart. I do not think that all or even most of you have false worship that has pulled you away from discipleship. I think you are tempted, yes. I think all of us are tempted. But I am certain of better things for you. Why? Why do I have hope for myself and hope for you? Hope that this call to obedience is not discouraging or overwhelming? but rather encouraging and life-giving? Why am I sure of better things for you who believe? It is because of the fullness of what the Gospel promises us. The Gospel does not just assure me that I'm forgiven of my sins. It doesn't just tell you that you are forgiven. It is also the promise that you have the Spirit of God. A Spirit that enables me, that empowers me to obey. To show the obedience that God requires. Obedience that's not just in deed, but from the heart that flows from the true worship of my soul, of my God and Savior. So when the crowds in John 6, when the crowds asked Jesus a similar question, they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You ask me about works, I'm going to tell you the work of God It's that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The obedience that the rich man sought 
was obedience that led to reward? What are the works that will lead us to acceptance in God's eyes, that will lead us to eternal life? What are the deeds we must do? Jesus calls His follower to a different kind of obedience. An obedience that moves from a position of blessing. So what is the work that God requires? To believe in the One He has sent. To believe that what Jesus has done is enough and to move forward from there in a spirit of obedience. Not working towards blessing and salvation, but working from it. Jesus has done the works that God requires. What good deed must you do? Nothing. Jesus has done the deed. You are saved by works. You are saved by the works of Jesus, however. So whatever obedience you in turn now show is just the expression, the evidence, the response to the salvation that comes by the works of Jesus. The difference, as I've said before, and we'll say again because it helps my simple mind understand this. The difference is like this. If you have a broken leg, you cannot go to the doctor and say, what good deed must I do? What activity do I have to do to fix this broken leg? How many laps around the track do I have to run to fix my broken leg? It's not how it works. But when the leg is healed, then the doctor says, now you are free. You are free to run, free to jump, free to kick the ball, free to do whatever you want with that leg. Believer, that's how it works for us. The deeds that we do, the obedience of God's people is not obedience that moves us towards healing. Obedience that that fixes what's broken. Obedience that earns us the reward. It's obedience that begins from the position of healing. Obedience that begins from a position of of reward and blessing. And is but the expression of that. Now that I am healed, behold what I am able to do. What works must we do? What good deed must we do? It is finished. The works are done. The deed has been accomplished not by you, but by Christ. Whatever else you do, it flows from that. It begins with the eternal life that God has given and moves on to a life of obedience in His name. Let's rejoice in that and and with that in mind, prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your work. We thank You for the works of Jesus Christ that have accomplished salvation for us. What we could not have done has been done. And because of that, we receive a rich welcome in the kingdom of God. We thank You for that. Teach that to our hearts. May we obey with joy vigor and confidence because we do not work towards eternal life but we work from it from the life that you have given we thank you on behalf of and in the name of the savior that you've given amen the lord jesus christ gave us this supper he gave us the bread and the cup to teach us To teach us that the obedience God requires has been accomplished. That the punishment on our disobedience has been accomplished. We speak often of Jesus dying in our place. And He did. 
Let us not lose sight of that. We are reminded of that in the bread and in the cup. His body, His blood set forth before us to remind us that He died a death that we could not endure. But that's not all of the Gospel. The bread and the blood also remind us that He took on human flesh to live a perfect life that we could not live. God requires righteousness. He requires perfect obedience. And when He looks upon us at the day of final judgment, He needs to see perfection. And here we have a reminder that God, on the day of judgment, does not look on us and see a filthy, corrupt, broken, sinful person who just makes it in by the skin of her teeth because God decided to let it slide. That's not how salvation works. When He looks upon you, He sees the full and perfect righteousness, the untainted obedience that He requires. Because as Scripture says, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so just as we saw last week, the young children being brought to Jesus and laid on His lap through no effort of their own, we don't show up at the gates of eternal life and say, well, Jesus gave me this free pass into heaven. That's how I get in. It's not like that. This teaches us our union with Christ. We are brought to heaven in Him. He enters eternal life. The only reason we enter as well is because we are in Him. We are united to Him. And so as you take the bread, take the bread and drink the cup, you are reminded that you are one with Christ. And it's only because of that oneness that you share His obedience. Only because of that oneness that you share in eternal life. That is the assurance that we have here this morning. And as such, this is for those who have trusted in Christ for eternal life. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be one who has trusted in Jesus Christ, who has looked to Him and said, I've stopped asking the question, what good deed must I do? Because I know now that it is finished. That Jesus did it in my place. If that's you, you have a place at this table. But if that's not you, if you're still trusting something else, if there's something Jesus could ask of you that would make you turn away in sorrow because you could no longer trust Him and obey, then this is not for you. You are warned to not take the bread, not drink from the cup, because your devotion, your loyalty is elsewhere. To drink and to eat from this table is to confess your loyalty to Jesus. If that's not something you can do, then don't do the physical act because it would betray what is truly going on in your heart. Instead, let it pass. Make this a time to consider and reflect. Be challenged by the Word that was presented this morning, the Word of God calling you to repentance. To repent of your own doings, your own righteous deeds, which are filthy in God's sight, and allow the works of Jesus to take their place. Or maybe you are one who, for whatever reason, confesses Jesus, who declares yourself a Christian, but that's just something you do with your words. Your obedience is not there. Remember what I said already this morning. Obedience comes from worship. And whatever the deeds of your life show, they reveal the true object of your worship. And I don't care if you call yourself a Christian. If the pattern of your life is not obedience. I'm not talking perfect obedience. 
I'm talking if the pattern of your life is in another direction altogether. Do not take the bread or drink the cup because you have forsaken the right to be called a child of God. Instead, repent. 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 Because here we have represented what God does to sin. He judges it with death. One other warning that we have in Scripture is that just as we are united to Christ, in Christ, we who are united to Him are made one. If there's something in your life that betrays the unity of God's people, whether it is withholding forgiveness from someone who has hurt you, or whether it is failing to make amends for wrong that you have done, whatever it is, Scripture warns us very clearly to first be reconciled, to first forgive, and then partake in the sign and symbol and seal of our unity as the body of Christ. And so as I pray in a moment, if repentance is necessary, repent. If reconciliation is necessary, then commit before God and the Holy Spirit upon your conscience to go forth from this table and be reconciled to your brother or sister. But make, make whatever amends are necessary in your heart to forgive, to repent, then come to the table. If I've said anything to discourage you, if I've said anything to make you feel like you are not good enough, like you, your faith is not strong enough, your obedience is not vivid enough, then don't listen to my words. Listen to the words of Jesus to come to Him, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and find rest. This is the reminder to all of us, strong or weak, that it's not your obedience that merits you a place at this table, but it's the work of Christ alone. Come freely to the table. This time I'm going to ask Oren and Matt to come forward as they prepare to help us receive the Lord's Supper. Let us in prayer prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would direct our hearts, direct our thoughts during this time. In faith, may we feed upon Your body your blood represented here to us. God, I pray that we who have failed in our obedience would find in here the perfect obedience of Christ. We who have failed in our faith will find here that it is not our faith that saves, but the object of our faith that saves. In receiving the bread and the cup this morning, May we be strengthened in our faith and strengthened in our discipleship and obedience to You. We who are many are made one in Christ. And in Christ we have every good thing. We thank You for this. In the name of our Savior. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that He was betrayed, ate with His disciples. And when He did, He took the bread. Raising the bread... He thanked God for what He had provided. He broke the bread and told His disciples, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance.